Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and I am the host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk about nurturing the unique baby brain. We're also going to talk about sleep development for your baby's brain. It's a really interesting conversation. I find it fascinating that how pliable a baby's brain from zero to three years old happens to be. It's really fascinating. So to have this conversation, I have Greer Kirschenbaum. Let me tell you a little bit about her. So Greer Kirschenbaum, PhD, is a neuroscientist, doula, and infant and family sleep specialist. She is leading the nurture revolution to change the way our society cares for infants and parents. Greer's company, Nurture Neuroscience, is on a mission to revolutionize the future of health. Greer wants families and perinatal practitioners to understand how early caregiving experience can boost mental wellness and diminish depression, anxiety, and addiction in adulthood by shaping babies' brains through simple, intuitive, enriching experiences in pregnancy, birth, and in infancy. Wow. There's a lot there. And Greer really has such great information that as a new parent or someone that's pregnant, you are probably going to stop, pause, grab something to write this down and just take some notes through our conversation. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Now, before we get to that, I want to remind you, head over to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com and grab your free downloadable, Five Simple Solutions to the Most Common Pregnancy Pains. And I say it every time, but remember you can apply these to postpartum pains because holding a baby, feeding a baby, pushing a stroller, ooh, it can do a number on your back and shoulders and neck, that whole area. So this free download will give you some quick tips on how to take care of your body and your mind. And speaking of your body and your mind, I want to remind you that we are continuing our online and in-person classes. We're continuously layering in more in-person classes as the demand starts to grow more. And we are continuing our online classes because it's beautiful how the community has grown. So PYC is going to be 20 years old this August. I know it's absolutely crazy because I didn't even know we finished our first five-year lease and here we are 20 years old. And it just, I'm so honored by all the families that have come through our door. And now that we are online, it's even broader than I ever could have imagined when I was a wee young person starting off this business with a degree in musical theater. What did I know? So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for showing up for the podcast. Thank you for showing up for classes. And if you're interested in our classes, again, check that out on our website, prenatalyogacenter.com. And then the last thing I want to remind you about how we decide to structure our teacher training. So if you are interested in getting a very thorough, in-depth knowledge of teaching pre and postnatal yoga. Check that out also on our website. So we're going to do two in-person prenatals a year and then two in-person, sorry, two online prenatals a year and then always a summer postnatal training. So it will always be, at least in my mind so far, will always be September, October in person in New York City, November, December online 
and then January, February online, and then March and April in person. And usually at the end of July, it's a full weekend postnatal teacher training. So lots of wonderful opportunities to enrich your training or just enrich your own practice. Okay, let's take a super quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Greer. Hi, Greer. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Well, I stumbled upon you as I do many people on Instagram. And then I was really taken about the way that you combine neuroscience and the understanding of the baby brain. That was fascinating to me. So I am so excited to dive into this. So yay. All right. So I guess we should start with, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and what inspired you to combine Combine your work with neuroscience and infant development. Yeah, um, it was a long, many years um, working in neuroscience laboratories. So I started my, I started working in neuroscience laboratories right after high school, um, and studied neuroscience in my undergraduate degree in um, a PhD and also in a postdoc position. And actually in high school, I wrote a paper about how experience in early life shapes our brain. And so it was always kind of something I was really interested in, especially in the realm of like learning and memory. And over my time in the lab, I I just got more and more inspired to bring the knowledge to families mm-hmm. because even I think over the 20 or so years that I was... Um, active in neuroscience laboratories, so much research has been coming out um, over that time that just kind of was always on my radar, you know, integrated into the research that I did as well. But it kind of felt like a tipping point to me at a certain point where it was like, okay, we have all this research about how unbelievably influential the first three years of life are for building the infant brain, not just in sensory systems and motor systems, but in our emotional brain, in our stress systems, which are the parts of our brain that underlie lifelong mental health. Mm-hmm. And so it's such an opportunity for families to understand and so that they can build, you know, as much mental health in for their babies um, as possible and take advantage of this flexibility. Yeah. The mind really is kind of like clay that we can mold. So it's exciting. And I think it's exciting for parents to also realize, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you can make a couple mistakes, several mistakes, and it's not going to mean your child is damaged. It means that their brains are really pliable, correct? Completely. Yeah. I think that (laughs) the, the message can feel really overwhelming and strong, but making mistakes, not being perfect is part of the process and expected. And, um, yes, like we are humans and, you know, we're going to be ourselves and that means Mistakes. never being perfect because there's no such thing as that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I hear that and I'm like, and my kids are older and I'm like, Oh, what did I do? And it's just in my brain as you're saying, I'm like, okay, what was going on as my kids were one to three? Like I was trying to put them in. I'm like, okay, take the pressure off. All right. So let's go ahead and talk about that. Like why it's so unique and how does the, the infant brain develop in those first three years? Yeah. So so the 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 part of the baby's brain that is developed at birth is really, you know, I call it the survival brain. 
it's the part of the brain that can, you know, allow a baby to survive, breathe, eat, um, eliminate waste, you know, uh, the really basic functions. And the part of the brain that's really being built and, you know, that I focus on um, is their emotional brain and the, and the part of the brain that is going to regulate stress and resilience um, onwards. And that in itself will then go on to support, you know, mental health and relationships and work and all of the things that we like wish for our babies. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's really that part of the brain, um, that I, you know, communicate to families to pay attention to, right. And to be, you know, knowledgeable about what that infant brain is expecting, um, to form, to form that resilient structures. Yeah. So in those first three years, is there certain developmental signs or is there, what should parents be thinking about in those first three years as their baby's brain develops? For sure. I think the best thing to do is to slow down because I was actually working with a, uh, a new parent today and she's already getting these texts like, are you going to swaddle? Are you going to you know, what kind of bed is the bassinet is going to be going to sleep in. And, you know, we can say we're going to make all these decisions before, but at the end of the day, it's really about like, what is our baby in front of us needing? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, all those gadgets, those, that falls into the category, but also our relationships. Right. And so instead of, you know, doing and kind of like running around and going, you know, to class to class and going and doing all these things so much of what our baby is needing and looking for and our parent brain too, because I didn't mention that yet either, but the parent brain is also massively transforming and needing things in these early years as well. Um, it's an opportunity for us as parents to also be remodeling our mental health structures and our stress systems too, which is kind of like a beautiful synchrony, um, that we're in with our babies. Um, but so much of it boils down to what is my baby in front of me needing and understanding we need to slow down, start being there with our baby, you know, understanding their tired cues, understanding their hunger cues, understanding their cues for communication and their cues for stress and providing that, you know, providing the communication back to them. Like that's really the fundamental thing. That's what's to look for in the development in this first three years. So you were mentioning the parent brain is developing. Can you, I hadn't thought about that. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's three times in life where our brains are incredibly flexible, um, especially in regards to, again, mental health and our stress systems. And that is infancy, which is defined as between zero to three years of life, adolescence. So when we start puberty, and while well, we go through puberty and then parenthood when we become parents. And so uh, mothers or people who birth babies will start to have brain changes throughout gestation and partners and fathers can start to have their changes in the first like weeks and months after babies are born. And so a lot of the brain structures that are being built in babies are also being built in parents. So our stress, you know, fear centers are being remodeled. Our reward centers are being remodeled. Our thinking 
parts of our thinking brain and our empathy, they're all being remodeled as well. And the more we communicate with our babies and respond to our babies and spend time close to our babies, the more our parent brains have the opportunity to be sort of remodeled and and uh, in a way that's regulating and beneficial to our to our mental health. So you mentioned two of the three that are just biological infancy and, and puberty. But what yeah. if someone doesn't become a parent? Yeah, then they 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 won't you know develop the parent circuitry. Yeah, their brain still has neuroplasticity, and there's tons of like therapeutic you know, modalities that you can engage in to change circuitry in your adult brain. And, you know, many, many people are engaged in that. Um, but yes, but you have to become a parent or what we call an allo parent, which is, you know, someone else in the baby's life, a baby's life who's spending a lot of time with a baby. So it's the, it's the presence of a baby, um, that will change the brain. So like people like, doulas, you know, probably are having alloparent brain changes, some nannies, grandparents, um, close aunts and uncles, close friends, anyone who spends a lot of time taking care of a baby will start to have some of these brain changes. Okay. This might sound like a, a dumb question, but if it's a grandparent, do they have the, or, or someone having multiple kids, do they have these brain changes multiple times? Yes. Yes. That's yes. really fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. Yeah. And it, that's, that's kind of a speculative answer because, um, we certainly know that happens to someone who's birthing a baby, um, every time because they would go through the same, you know, hormonal changes and probably the partner too. Um, but I would have to say, yes, I don't think there's a specific study on it, but that is like my guess based on what we have. Okay. Yeah. No, that's interesting. All right. So you talked about stress. I heard you say stress. So I would love to know a little bit more about, I guess, the stress system in the baby's brain, how it, ex- how it develops. And then also like, are there signs that a baby feels stressed? I'm guessing it's different than what my mind thinks of, of when I'm stressed and how I get a little irritated. Maybe, maybe it's not because I get irritated and short and snippy. Mm-hmm. So maybe babies yeah. do too. So For sure. they really do. I think, um, the way that we take care of our babies and their stress and the way that we take care of ourselves and our stress as adults and parents is pretty similar, right? I think, I think something that's missing in the baby world is that understanding that they're people just like us. They're born full humans, right? They still have very different brains, of course, but babies are born with very, very similar needs and emotional expression and communication as we are as adults. It's just, you know, in a baby expressed like in a baby way. Um, so like needs that underlie our stress are like our basic needs, right? Food, water, communication, touch, um, things like that. And so as parents, those are things, one way, like the first avenue that we can watch for to take care of ourselves is make sure our basic needs are met and the same way that we do for our babies. Um, but yeah, then it's like, when we express ourselves, like what are the needs underlying that, right? So when babies are stressed, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll cling to us. They'll want to hold us because we buffer their stress. Our presence buffers their stress. Um, they'll cry. They can become dysregulated, sort of like their 
body language becomes sort of asymmetrical and flailing, um, that kind of thing. And sometimes babies will shut down when they're stressed, which is like a lesser known response, right? Same with us as adults, right? We, we can go into our fight or flight. Mm-hmm. kind of stress response where we're activated or anxious or, you know, really active, but we can also go into a freeze kind of shut down response. And so babies can, you know, do that too. I would think that would actually be harder for a parent to recognize as a stress state because they would be like, oh, the baby's calm when it's really shut down. Yeah, it is really, really difficult. Yeah. You really do have to like know you know, what's sort of like the baseline behavior for your baby. So you could notice like, oh, okay, this is, this, this is, is off. Different. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's again, talk a little bit about the development stage. And I, I try to think back when I was a parent, when I was a very new parent, I, especially with my first, I tend to be a type A personality. And so, <laughs> which those that listen to the podcast were like, yes, she is. Um, I, <laughs> I researched a ton, not as much with my second. I feel slightly badly about that, but I would research like, what are the best educational toys? And it was like, everything was wooden. And, and I was like, what kind of classes should we sign up for? And I'm like, oh, they need to have tummy time. Let's sit and do tummy time and let's sing. And so I, I really like threw everything at it and, <laughs> and maybe I overdid it, but what should one think about? as the baby's brain is developing and milestones. And then I guess it's kind of a part two to that. What about when parents might be pushing tasks outside of the developmental place? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, so sorry, remind me. (laughs) So I guess the first part was more like, what? Oh oh, yeah. What what do babies need? Yeah. Like what's that development and the milestones like in those first three years? And then what happens when someone's like, I, my child's going to be the super child. We're going to pass those milestones. Uh, Oh my gosh. I love this question because I think, you know, it sounds like that was like, you went through a lot there, right? Like that was a lot of effort, right? A lot of time. And I mean, I've been there too. I have a a three-year-old, um, I did, you know, Google like crazy as well, a lot of things. Um, but you know what, at the end of the day, uh, you know, my view is we want all of those things for our baby, right? We want our baby to have the best start. We want them to like have all the right things. Um, we don't want to miss this opportunity of infancy because it, we all know on a level how important it is. Um, so so my, my view is let's give our, fill our babies like emotional needs up. And once they have that, then yeah, of course, like a class is great. It's also great for the parents to get out and have social time. Um, but, but for, you know, in this world that's so overwhelming with so many things for our babies, they really just need the basics, which are, you know, a lot of face-to-face time with their parents, really like having a connected, you know, back and forth conversations, right? Starting right from the beginning. Um, they need a reliable person to help them with their stress. So when they're stressed, they need to know that an adult in their life is going to be there to help them lower their stress because they can't do that on their own. 
And, and beyond that, that emotional safety of both like in positive states of like playfulness, exploration and interaction. And in their sort of like negative feeling states of stress where they have someone there to help them. That is like the fundamental like needs for infants. And so, you know, if we only have time for that as a parent, if everything feels overwhelming, but we can do those things, like our baby's going to do amazing. Like they will reach their potential. Um, and then, yeah, of course, beyond that, if like we can do that and go to music class once a week, if we can do that and have like, you know, park time and gym time and, you know, all the things, um, that's all kind of like icing on the cake. That's mm-hmm. kind of my view. Yeah. But what would, what happens when parents, what happens to the baby when parents may be trying to push outside of their developmental pace? So like, cause I actually, I remember clearly listening to conversations of like parents with their like two year olds are like, we're trying to get our child to read now. I'm like, really? Um, yeah. so, <laughs> is that, is that actually harmful or it just overachieving or overstimulating? Well, I would want to know, I mean, every baby is different and every individual is different, but I mean, I would want to know, like, how is the baby experiencing that? Right. And in the first three years, so much of learning about the world is social. It's all through the relationship with the parent and it's also exploratory and motor. So, you know, we don't actually have to lead babies from zero to three to do those things, right? They want to be crawling, walking, touching um, the world around them, interacting with people. Um, and so if, you know, you're teaching your two-year-old to read and that's like an enjoyable experience for them where they're like, you know, really into it, they're smiling, it's like a great communication between them and their parent and it's fun, um, sure. You know, it's not necessary at all. Um, but, but that's okay. But if it's a stressful thing where it's like the parent stressed, the child is stressed, or like, you have to sit in this chair, you have to finish these, this assignment cards or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, that baby would probably be much happier and more, you know, enriched if they didn't have to be restricted to that and they could, go off and explore and, and, you know, lead their own exploration. Mm -hmm. Is there any signs that a baby's overstimulated? Yeah, for sure. So I think if babies are overstimulated, they will go into one of those, you know, three stress responses, which is fight where they're angry and combative and they want to hit things or kick things, um, flight where they just want to run away, um, or, or shut down, right? Withdraw and shut down. Um, yeah, they can definitely get overstimulated that way. I think, you know, it's, it happens for sure. We take our babies into like big social, you know, situations or new experiences. And that's, you know, a good thing for them to be like exposed to novelty and new things. And, um, I think if they're overstimulated, just, having the presence of their caregiver be really supportive in that moment is what's going to help them, you know, regulate. Just don't want them alone experiencing that. But yeah, definitely be noting that, right? Like some parents will have like a morning activity and then an afternoon activity and then the baby's like home napping in between those things, but there's never any like 
downtime and relaxing time. And some, that will be like a great thing for some babies, but for some babies that will be overstimulating, right? And they might need just like blue sky time where they get to like be at home, just be relaxed with a caregiver, um, relaxed, you know, exploring, you know, their world, um, on their own too. Yeah. I found with my own kids that I used to want to have, in my mind, our weekends were four quadrants. We'd have Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. I would try to fill them. And when I realized early, and my kids were at two and a half years apart, is that if we only filled two of those, it was much better. And just having relaxed, unstructured time actually took tantrums down. And it took me a little to be like, Oh, they're overstimulated. Like I, I was doing it, I think for let's have stuff to do. And I was getting a little bored, but when I looked, when I stepped back at behavior patterns on times that I didn't fill everything, I noticed it was actually a little chiller. So it took me, Uh (laughs) took me several tantrums. Well, I think that's just a good lesson for parents listening to like, know that as well. Like behavior is communication and like behind behaviors are emotions. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like that you could see like your, your kids were getting upset and you're like, okay, what's, what's behind this, right? Like they're overstimulated. Let's... Yeah. Cause I'm like, we're doing awesome, yeah. fun things. Why are there tantrums? And I'm like, Oh, I get it. I get it. It took me a bit, yeah. but if I live game clear, all right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, let's talk about ways to nurture brain health for babies. We'll be right back. We are back. So what are some ways that parents can nurture brain health for their babies? Yeah. So I think a lot of, you know, the ideas are out there, but I don't, I don't see, you know, tons of families, you know, really like embracing, you know, a lot of these concepts, right. In a full, in a kind of a full way. Um, so I think to think about like infant needs in different stages, so, you know, the first stage is the newborn stage, right? Like the first, we'd say like three, four months kind of thing. Um, and starting in that time, like tons of closeness is like what the infant brain is looking for, right? The, the sensory input from their parents, um, they want to smell you, they want to hear you, they want to touch you and feel you. Um, it's really, really important. So I think people know that they're like, oh yeah, I did skin to skin for an hour in the hospital. So I did it like check it off the list. Um, but babies like really want to be living there on your chest for many, many weeks and months, um, after birth. And so shifting to that, um, you know, is like a big, a big change, um, for, for families and, and society and like really, really, really wonderful for the baby's brain, especially in the first six weeks after birth. Um, you know, we recommend that's like the default place for babies. Um, and then, you know, beyond that as well. Right. And this doesn't have to necessarily be like right after birth. Like if you missed it, like, let's say like you didn't have a lot of that kind of contact and your baby's like 10 months now, you can, you can still recreate it, right? You can still, um, have lots of close touch and, and snuggles and stuff like that. Um, and, and then once babies start to roll and crawl and move around, um, 
then you're still kind of like their safe place, your body. And, and then we just want to support their exploration and then their need for closeness. All right. So they're going to crawl around and then get upset and then they'll need to be close and then kind of, you know, go back to, to doing that. So much of nurturing the infant brain is listening to infant communication, right? Like I always say, like that survival brain is, is our instruction manual for building the emotional brain, right? Like I'm clinging to you. That means I need to be held. I'm crying. That needs, it means I need you to help me calm down. Um, I'm laughing and enjoying like, enjoy this with me and share this joy with me. Um, that's kind of like the best, like overall overview of it. And I think it's, it is really in opposition to what is going on out there because there's a lot of myths, like even just for the newborns, like they have to learn to be put down. They have to go in a swing and they have to go in, you know, a stroller and all these kinds of things. And babies like are saying, no, I don't want that. I want, to be in a baby carrier or I want to be, you know, I want to be held and like, they don't have to learn that. Um, that's not what their biology is asking for unless, you know, that baby's fine with it. Right. They're all different. Um, and same with the exploration thing. I think so many parents push it like, Oh, you're at the play group. Like you have to like get in there and like, don't, you don't need me. Cause you're, you're, um, you're here to play with the other kids. Right. And instead of like, really just like listening to like, what the child is needing. Right. And so, so if there was one take home message, it's like, it's, it's, I think I've already said it. It's like, they need unconditional access to a positive response, um, to both their joy and their sadness. Wow. As you were talking, I just had so many things popping in my head. I really appreciate what you said. It also made me think about when you're saying the play groups, those that might have multiple kids might have noticed this, that it's can really start to be a time to notice your child's personality, even younger. Like my son is <laughs> you're like, you put him in a play group, he's like, bam, go in, do things, yeah. hands on everything. And my daughter was always a little more like, I'm going to watch, I'm going to assess, I'm going mm. to then poke my toe in. And then when I feel comfortable, I will just let it go and have a good time. And, yeah. and that's how they behaved as infants and toddlers and still to this day. And it can be, it can be eye opening to see maybe our own expectations as parents. And maybe we're kind of presenting what we would do or how we would be adults, but how kids really can start to show their personalities really young. And I guess yeah. give space for that. Yeah, absolutely. My husband was actually saying that today, um, to our friend who was like, you know, our son's three and a half now. And he's like, he has had the exact same personality since he was born. He's like, it's the same person. Yeah. And it's like, it's so hard to describe because obviously a newborn and a three and a half year old are very different, but he was always there, right? His temperament, his, preferences, all that kind of stuff. It's really amazing to see. Yeah. And my kids, I feel like even in utero, they were in the way they were birthed. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're literally the same person. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's shift gears to talking about sleep development. That is a conversation. So yesterday in postnatal, we had, I think 10 moms there and we talked about before we start class, there was a big conversation about poop and sleep. Like those are the two main (laughs) things people talk about when they talk about babies. And I know you do a lot of work with sleep with babies. So what is the science behind baby's sleep development. Yeah, it's a really 
Um, it's a really like important piece for families to understand. Like I, that is my wish for families to have really, really well informed knowledge about infant sleep before they have their babies. So they can kind of be set up with realistic expectations because again, there's very, very unrealistic expectations out there that just do not work for a lot of families for none of the families I work with. Right. So I think infant sleep, I'll start off by saying, this is, I say it everywhere, like it's the most unfair thing in the world. Um, some babies are super comfortable sleeping. They sleep long stretches. They don't wake up a lot. And other babies are the opposite, right? They need to be really close to their parents to sleep. They wake up a lot. They have difficulty with sleep and take a long time for it to, to develop, right? There's a huge spectrum. Um, there's a lot of studies that show it and it's every time I see it, it's just wild, right? So some parents worry my baby sleeps too much. Other parents are worried my baby doesn't sleep enough. And you know, when I'm like, here, like take a look at the research, the, the variance in how much babies sleep at all the ages between zero to three, it's enormous, right? So that's the first message for parents is like, we have no idea like what kind of baby you're going to have. We don't know what kind of sleeper, you know, you're going to have. Um, it's really important and to help them understand like that variance, right? So, so yeah. So I think it's important for families to also know sleep develops in its own time in babies. Um, for most of the babies I see, um, you know, because I do work with families to help support their sleep and their baby's sleep. Um, night waking is a feature of infant sleep. You know, some, for some people it's six months, some people it's 12 months. For most families, it's, it's up to about two, two and a half years old that babies will still be waking up at night and needing support from adults. Um, which is just something that's not out there, right? Like no one's told that. Um, whatsoever. And, and the stress system of babies during the day is identical to at night, right? Where they don't have the brain parts to calm down themselves and they still require adult presence, um, to, to calm down. Right. And so that's, that's the facts, their brain architecture, their sleep architecture is completely different than adult sleep architecture, where they do have a lot of light sleep. They do have a lot of, um, short sleep cycles. And so they have, um, the tendency to like enter light sleep and wake up, you know, and assess their needs throughout the night. So that's important for, for parents to know that, that it's, you know, normal for some babies to need to be in the same room as their parents for all of infancy. It's normal for babies to have night wakings for all of infancy. It's normal for babies to want to have their parents help them fall asleep at night and then help them fall asleep again when they wake up in the middle of the night. Um, that's kind of the science part. And then there's also like an entire art of supporting that, right? So once we understand what is normal infant sleep, um, then we can also understand, okay, how do we, you know, work with the art of infant sleep to make sure that the whole family is being, re is relatively rested and supported, um, as Let's go into about. that because as I hear you say that, I, I don't know how both my kids, 
I don't want to use the term good or bad because I don't want to feel like, oh, my child's bad. My kids were pretty solid sleepers. Um, and which was very helpful because I don't function well with little sleep. And as I hear you saying, it is very normal. And as we're now saying infancy in my brain, I didn't think about infancy till three, but if we're saying it is normal for, children from zero to three to need support. And I'm thinking, Oh my good Lord, how, what happens to the parents that's, you know, up for, and then you have maybe two kids or three kids and they're like, that's nine years of, or could be like up to nine years of disrupted sleep. So can you talk about, as you were calling, I love it, the art of making sure everyone's well rested and the art of helping baby sleep. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's, I think an entire course on it. It's a lot. All right. So maybe uh, not the whole course, but like some, but, some like the best yeah. of or the, the highlights. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think so, a huge part of it is understanding infant sleep, understanding what babies need to optimize their sleep, which is light exposure first thing in the morning, natural light throughout the day, um, enough physical activity, enough relationship. Um, so a responsive relationship is also help helpful for sleep. Um, and then a comfortable sleep environment, right? So like I said, there's, you know, there's some babies that are fine sleeping in their own room, you know, starting at young ages, other babies are going to need proximity, right. To be like in the same room as their parents, um, throughout that time. Um, and then helping the parents, right? So like supporting an infant sleep is not a one person job, right? That if there is a primary caregiver, you know, who's waking up, helping their baby fall back asleep in the night, um, we want to make sure that they're, that more than one person is doing that if possible. And if not, that person can sleep in sometimes, have naps sometimes, go to sleep and go to sleep early, like really, really heavily prioritize their sleep. Um, and then the other thing I should say is these night wakings that babies have, like there's again a huge spectrum of it, but sometimes like, you know, if the sleep environment is set up to be really, you know, close and, and comfort, comfortable, it doesn't, it's not like a full waking, right? So like sometimes if someone's bed sharing or has a sidecar bed right next to their bed, they can, you know, feed a baby, neither the parent nor the baby fully wakes up and, and everyone just, you know, has the feed and then rolls over and goes back to sleep, right? Other times, like older babies, you know, after two, like maybe, you know, they'll wake up and then just need their parent's hand on their chest to be like, I'm here, you're safe. And then everyone goes back to sleep, right? So it's not like the night waking that you might be thinking of where like the parents like getting out of bed, going down the hall, going to a kid's room, rocking them back to sleep, lowering them back to sleep, and then going back to sleep themselves, which could be like a 30 minute plus, you know, disruption to the sleep. It could be like a two minute or one minute or less, you know, kind of disruption. Um, and when, we can figure that out. It's different for every family. Um, the, the family people can get adequate rest that way. Yeah. Okay. That sounds a lot more digestible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there are some people who do do the walking down the hall and are responsive that way too. And that's their, you know, that's what works for them. So I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but there's, yeah, there's way there's other ways too. 
Yeah, I, I definitely appreciated once that had dropped away in our family <laughs> that we could all sleep a little bit longer and harder. All yeah. right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, I would love just to open it up if there's anything else you want to share that I didn't ask. And then if we have really hit all the main points you want to share, if there's one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer for new and expectant parents, we'll be right back. So you have so much knowledge between the the work you've done as a neuroscience and the work you do with families for sleep development and doula work. So is there anything that I didn't ask that you're like, I need to share this to make this a complete conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think I didn't, the one thing I didn't say, um, that people, you know, I, I won't go too in depth, but I did allude to this, the, the idea that babies can't lower their own stress and they rely on adults to do that um, is, I think, you know, very important for parents to understand because it goes against all the myths of like babies need to learn, learn that by themselves, by being left alone or isolated. Right. And so I think the idea that when babies are invited in to be very interdependent on us in those early days or even dependent because there's nothing weak about that. Um, that is what creates the independence later on. And so that is against kind of a lot of the knowledge out there right now. And so I feel like that's a really important message mm. for, for parents to know. The other thing that has been coming up a lot in my conversations lately is like, we, you know, there is a whole, you know, philosophy and parenting of that. Like they need to be independent. They need to do things on their own. They need to settle by themselves. Um, I would like to put out there that in my opinion, I don't think we should have any human on earth think that when they're stressed, that they should go and isolate themselves. That is a very unhealthy thing, an unhealthy way to cope with stress. Our human nature um, is when we're stressed to go seek out the comfort from other human beings. And so that's exactly the same for babies as it is for us as adults. It's not like a gold star. If like, oh, cool, you can be massively stressed out and go and cry about it alone in a room by yourself. Like, that's not what we really want any human to do. It's not safe. Right. I have a question about that. What about when a child like is having a tantrum, can they, and they can deregulate themselves by actually stepping out of the tantrum and out of the space. Is that different? Yeah. I mean, that would be an older child who like would have developed some regulatory, but at the same time, a, a child who's tantruming still wants to know that you're there. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so if a child starts tantruming and like storms off into their room, you know, a good thing to do is to just sit safely by, like, even if they don't want you in the room to be like, I'm right outside. I'm here for you, you know, when you're ready. Um, you know, right. Cause in a tantrum, there's sort of like an, an angry phase in the beginning where you are kind of in fight, you know, a fight response where you're like, get away from me. I want to be alone. Don't touch me. But that usually will turn then into like a sad kind mm -hmm. of phase where it's like, yeah, I do need a hug now. Yeah. Um, so it is really beneficial um, for you to be there, right? We also have to accept 
unconditionally accept our kids' emotions. We don't want to be like, okay, you're tantruming right now. Like, go isolate yourself. I don't want to see that. Like, right. I'll love you when you're happy. I'm not going to love you when you're not happy. Right? I like that idea if they storm off on their own to just be like, I'm here. Not be like, okay. Yeah, I didn't, I hope it didn't come across like, I only love you when you're happy. But I do know I've seen kids. In fact, my my youngest, when she, even little, little, sometimes when she would have a tantrum, she would calm herself down by going in her room and going under her covers. Right. And we would be like, Hey, whenever you need us, we're here. Um, yes. but that was her way. Even young, 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 she would do that. Yeah. That's really advanced for yeah. sure. But yeah, of course you're always like in communication with the, in relationship. Right. And that's what she's like, this is what I need right now. And you're like, yeah, got it. Like, I'm here for you if you need me, right? This is super helpful. So what is one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents? And it can be anything because you're, you are a parent. So is there anything that you feel like you want to share? Yeah, for sure. I think we're all doing our best. Every single parent is doing their best. Um, and we're all, we're all going to mess up. We're not perfect. And that's okay. I think, you know, just being aware and conscious of it and being able to provide repair, you know, apologize when we don't act the way we want, we wish we would, we did, or do the things we wish we did, um, is really important. It can go a long way with all people, right? Babies and, and everyone. That's great advice. Where can people find your work? Yeah. So you can find my work, um, on Instagram. Um, I am nurture neuroscience parenting and my website is nurture So yeah, sign up for my newsletter. I have some freebies there on my website and I'm going to be building that up, um, as I am writing a book right now and that's going to come out in a year or so. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of this really great knowledge. I think it's going to help a lot of parents better understand how to support their children and their, and their, their infant's brain development, as well as expectations and especially sleep development, which as again, I keep saying so, so important for a happy parent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.